This is Brenda Sauter from Wild Carnation, and you're listening to Sticky Jazz. The opinions expressed on this show are solely those of Jeremy Hinks and Sticky Jazz Podcast and do not necessarily reflect those of anyone else on this planet. And good day, everybody. Welcome to Sticky Jazz. I'm Jeremy Hinks, the man of a million musical opinions, all of which happen to be correct. This week, I have uh, part one of the uh, two-part, only because it went so long. Um, I have Ian McNabb of the Icicle Works, and uh, he's one of the great Liverpool musicians of the New Wave era. He has been making music pretty much for 40 years, and uh, we had to cut it up into two parts. The first... Basically, we talked about his mom, uh, friends, people that we both know, and the history of the iSchool Works and where he went, influences, and then we talked about his music in the second hour. So I'm going to give you the first hour this time, and I'm going to kick this off with the iSchool Works, Birds Fly, Whisper to a Scream. Let's all sit back and do the sticky jazz.
everybody. Good day and welcome to Sticky Jazz. I'm Jeremy Hanks here in Salt Lake. And uh, this week I've got the the scouser, the icicle worker, the uh, the the one of the greatest men from Liverpool, Ian McNabb from the Icicle Works. Ian, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jeremy. How are you doing today? I'm I'm good. It's uh what just six a.m. here and wow, uh, yeah, it's pretty early. Yeah, that, that the Earth is round. We have time zones, and uh, but uh, I am more than thrilled to get this one lined up. Uh, let's see. So, Ian, you've got a brand new record. Well, not brand new, but uh, Nabby Road. And then you got sick and that took you out for a while. So that kept delaying any interviews you were able to do because you got sick for that little while. That Everything just kind of got put on hold. I, I hope you're recovering. Yeah, it was a kind of funky time. I started doing the record in November, December 21. And then um, I had a bunch of friends that passed all at the same time. And then my mum passed while I was doing the record. Um, you know, I won't go into it, but obviously I kind of threw everything into a bit of a spin. And so then I took a break. And then um, then I wasn't particularly well for a while. We had to postpone a few shows. Um, I, I went into this kind of <clears throat> shock kind of thing. Um, you know, the things that are associated with grief, basically. Um, but, you know, we're a year on now and, you know, getting on with it like people do. So yeah, that's what we do, isn't it? Well, I, I don't expect you to remember me, this, but I met you first at the Guinness Flaw, Finsbury Park, 1998, when you were playing with Mike Scott. Oh, my word. I remember, I, do you know what? I, I can't lie and say I specifically remember meeting you because in those situations... Well, it was you know, a festival, yeah. It was... Festivals are so crazy, you know. Yeah, you have ex-girlfriends turning up, and you, you know, and you're like, "What?" You know, and 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 people that you've you've known for years that you haven't seen, who are in bands, people backstage, and it's all a pretty crazy scene. So I don't specifically remember meeting you there, Jeremy, but I do remember we had fun that day. It was a good day. Well, I had uh, I I was living in Paris at the time and uh, was just over visiting in London and I saw a poster for it and I I made a call and someone said I can get you in on a working pass for David Gray so oh, I was like cool. sure so I did that so I had a lamb I I had the the laminate you know so I could go anywhere and then you know so when you were up there and Mike Scott was just introducing the band and he said and over here on bass is Ian McNabb I was like whoa you know like. And so um, afterwards, I walked up to you and I said, hey, Ian, you know, you were supposed to be in Amsterdam for that Echo and the Bunnyman show. And you were like, oh, hey, man, listen, you know, things come up. It's just like that you get everything gets derailed. You don't make, you know, plans yeah. fall through. Yeah. And I said, yeah, well, Henry Priestman and Jeremy Stacy were both expecting you to be at that bunny show. And, uh, and you and we talked about that for a few minutes. Yeah, well, because um, Je Jeremy had been playing with uh, in the Mike Scott band, and uh, he had a he had a couple of little things, a couple of little rubs with Mike, 
and and he got offered the Bunny Men gig, so he, he went off and did that. And I can't remember who was playing drums for us that day, but um, I, I can remember the set list because um, Mike, for quite, quite a while, Mike Scott, lead singer of the Water Boys. I think we played as the Mike Scott band that day. I yeah, don't it was Mike it Scott. Was. There was you, there was Mike, there was Steve, and I remember it all meeting all of you guys. And the first time I had ever met Steve as well. But I and, and um, I, I remember we because uh, me and Mike were working on a song called "We Are Jonah," and uh, so Mike, you know, there's the flower. They're all ready for us. You know, we had the Queen slot, tea time slot. You know. Before it went dark and he goes oh i know what we're gonna open with we're gonna open with we are jonah a song that nobody had ever heard and i'm like as as much as i'm into doing stuff like that crazy stuff i was like no man we just gotta go out there hit him with medicine bow or... and you did that was like number four in the set right medicine yeah. bow yeah and, and and uh that was it was a good show we had a good time yeah, it was, uh, I was just like, I didn't know you were in Mike's band at the time, although Jeremy had told me earlier that you were working with Mike and that you had all been working with Mike. And Jeremy was like, yeah, Ian McNabb, he's me best mate, you know, and he just, you know, Jeremy, great guy, you know. Yeah, and, I speak to Jeremy quite a lot, yeah. And um, then uh, as that went, this was what was pretty funny. Um, you were like, well... You know, Jeremy, he's over just on the other side there. He's playing with World Party today with Chris Sharrick, actually, and with Henry Priestman. And I was yeah. like, oh, okay, because I, I hadn't talked to them since the Bunny Tour just a few months earlier. Sure. And so I went over and I met some like, I go from the Mike Scott camp to the other side of the park and I'm I'm talking to World Party, you know, which, you know, Carl Wallinger and there was Jeremy and everybody and they were all great. Just everyone there was just really yeah, great, yeah. but they had had the, uh, the the set crapped out three songs in because of all the tech difficulties and oh wow but it was so funny hanging with I'm with Carl and Jeremy and I was like oh yeah Ian yes and Ian sent me over and it was just it was just a weird because I'm meeting Everybody in the Water Boys, because that was Anthony's first day back on with anything with Mike in quite some time that day too. Wasn't I it? think I think you're correct there. Yeah, I, could, I mean, what happened with? I mean, me and Mike have been friends for a long time, and um, in I think it yeah it was this was 1997, and um, I just come off the back of finished touring a record and I was pretty burnt out. An album of mine called uh, Mersey Beast which came out in 96. Yeah, we'll and, talk about um, that in a minute, but keep going. And and Mike was shooting a video for a, for a tune off off the Still Burning record, which was the one he had out at the time obviously, a tune called Love Anyway. And they did they didn't have a bass player the day of the the video shoot. And so Mike said to me, "Hey, do you fancy coming down and just mime in the bass?" being in the video and we'll have good crack and all that. And I went, yeah, sure. So I went down and we spent a day out in the country in a, in a country pile somewhere shooting the video. And we all uh, got on really well and we had a great laugh. And I'm, I'm a good, um, I, I, I'm a, you know, that thing in Spinal Tap where they say, you know, he is fire and 
is ice, you know. <laughs> I mean, I am lukewarm water, so I'm very, I'm very good at pulling people together. And uh, so, you know, I was kind of like making it a little bit easier because it's a long day doing a video. No musician likes enjoys shooting a video, and so that was done. Um, and we were playing live along with the track. And then Mike still couldn't find a bass player um, like a few weeks afterwards. And he was starting to panic because the tour was coming up. And Jeremy, and I've always said this to Jeremy, I've really thanked him for it many times. Jeremy says, well, why don't you get Ian in, man? And, and Mike was like, what, Ian? But no, Ian's like a front man. He's, he's a guitar player. He's not a bass player. You know, he, no, he wouldn't do that. And he says, oh, I think he would, man. You know, ask him. So Mike said, would you be interested in playing bass on this upcoming tour? And I went, yeah, great. He was concerned that a front man going to a sideman gig, you know, he, he's, and Mike's often complimented me on, on the way that I handled that. But it was just great fun going around Europe and we went to the Far East, you know, playing fantastic Waterboys tunes. And I was on bass, you know, number one, you're not in the, the mix till the third song. You don't have to worry how many people are turning up. Uh -huh. You don't have to do the interviews. Right. It's like you go on stage, you do your thing, you come off stage, you do whatever you want. You haven't got people hustling you all day because it ain't your band. Because you're only... the front man, yeah. Yeah, yeah the, only, the only thing that took me a little while to get used to was uh, you go on stage and you start playing. And you realize everybody's kind of looking over that way, you know. They're all They're watching Mike you. and not you this time around, yeah. But I did that for a while, and that that was that was that was good fun. That's really interesting. Just that that Mike was considerate of you being you and your frontman status, because you know this is Mike Scott, you know the Waterboys guy, the ego, the you know I'm the greatest guy on you know kind of thing, right? Because Mike does have that about his persona. Yeah, it's like it's like it's like Ian McCulloch in that respect, you know, kind of stoic, unshakable self belief and confidence. Um, and he, you know, I think he was relating it to the fact that I think that he would have found it difficult to go, to go into somebody else's band as a a journeyman, if you like. But you know, I mean, I've played with lots of people over the years, and. It's it's not a it's not a big switch, you know. Um, and and when I was growing up, I played in uh, cabaret bands over here, and you know there'd be a bunch of us, and and I wasn't the lead singer, so I was used to being part of a a collective, you know, where you were just part of a band, you weren't the front man, so it wasn't a, a big deal for me. Wow, see, this is really just interesting to hear how you're just talking about it like this, because I mean those were some great. I mean, those were great days. I remember that whole time very well. It was just a, I mean, you know, not not to rip on David Gray, but you know, enough said because <laughs> he was just a very difficult person. But um, that well, you day... know, David David Gray um, opened a tour for me. Yeah, we had, we had the same publisher, Warner Chapel. In, in the early 90s and I got you know the, the records came to me I would just sign this guy and he had a couple of records out and I liked them thought he was very edgy um I thought he had some great songs and he he, he was struggling 
so they put him on tour with me and I remember uh, the first gig I can't remember what it was but I remember if I have a support act opening act I'm, I'm always I always try to treat them the way I would like to be treated so you know I knock on his dressing room door and go in to David Gray's dressing room and I go hey David you know nice to meet you thanks for doing the tour and hope we have a good time if there's anything you need getting a good crack of the PA and all that don't let anybody put you off speak to me and he was he was very kind of uh oh what's the point of it all man you know oh this is all a bunch of horseshit man and you know and he was very off you know and I I kind of I went oh that's, that's a bit weird first gig and the support band's got an attitude and then um and then as the tour went on I was getting reports back that he was being a bit arsy with the crowd. And with the, if they were talking while he was playing, he'd stop and kick off on them. You know, doing all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Which was a bit awkward. Um, so that's how I got to know David Gray. I mean, I don't like to talk badly about people. I'm not talking badly about it. Yeah, yeah, no. I, I, yeah. He, had, he had a bit of an attitude even before he had any success, you know. Yeah, he... he uh... He he picked a fight with a bouncer in Boston, who was one of the biggest dudes I'd ever met. You know, Big Dave, and he just was like David Gray was yelling at me and getting in my face about shit. So I just gave it right back to him, and you know, they just I mean, I, I just all across the states, I've heard stories about how he had just you know, just pissed off people. And, well, you know, some people are like that, and they and they don't change. I mean. Yeah. From a personal point of view, I've just always figured, look, we're all out here doing a job. It's going to be so much easier if we're all nice to each other, even if we don't mean it, you know. Just be polite and we'll yeah. all get out earlier. Never hurt anybody to be polite, that's for sure. But, um, no, that day was great because I... Oh, let, let me see. There's so much about that day where so much came, you know, I, I had gotten to hang out with Sinead and uh, Shane McGowan came and sat down at the table next to us, you and I, when you and I were talking, Shane McGowan came and I was like, excuse me, Ian, I gotta go say hi to Shane. You're like, no, that's fine. You know, but um, you gave me your phone number to your oh, house. Wow. Uh, Cause I was, I was, I was like talking about a writing project that I was on. And he gave me your phone number to your house. And then when I was back in the States, uh, about four or five months later, I called and uh, I rang up and Pat answered the phone. Oh, and, my word. And we talked for a good hour. She was great, man. Oh, and, man, that's so great. That's and and so I, great. I just said, look, I'm, I'm working on this little film project where I want to use Ian's song, The Atheist, in it. And... Um, I just wanted to run it past him and get his permission, see if he'd be okay with us using it in a short film. It's about a girl that loses faith. And and Pat was like, oh, yeah, Ian, just say, take it, go for it. You can have it. She was, because she's like, Neil, he's in, uh, Ian, he's in New York with Neil Young right now doing something with the new record. But yeah, he'd, he'd be okay with you using this song. <laughs> yeah, that's Pat. <laughs> And I mean, she and I called another time and you were somewhere else, like back in Maine of Europe or something. I was like, well, the tour dates don't line up here. And he had, I thought he'd be home because I looked online and she said, no, he's he's still over in, in Europe doing something. So oh, I should have uh, given you my mobile number. 
but she was really funny about that. I, mean, I was just talking to, I was like, I just called, I was talking to Pat, and I thought, oh, is this, you know, she's like, oh, I'm his mom, actually. I'm, yeah, I, oh. I do some of his management work too, but I'm his, he's, he's me. So I was like, oh, wow. And she was so fun to talk to. Pat was really great. Oh, thanks for saying that, Jeremy. Yeah. So I, I'd only talked to her just those two times, right? But she was such a, oh, yeah, Jeremy from the States. Hello, you know, when I called the second time, and she was just a total sweetheart as well. So she, I I really did enjoy talking to her. And well, I, she, you know, she's, um, she was a proper rock and roll mama, you know. What, really? And, and, she, and she's she's been in every situation, you know. I mean, the, the things that, that, I, that I've foisted upon her, you know, one of the, the funniest, uh, there's so many, but I, I won't bore you with them. But one of them I remember was a, a very good friend of mine, Zach Starkey, was playing um, with his dad's band, Ringo. And they they played in London on the on the uh, Saturday night, and they were playing in Liverpool on on the Monday. And Zach rang me up on the Sunday afternoon, and he went, "Hey, Ian, listen, man, uh, can you do me a favour?" I went, "Yeah, sure. What?" He goes, "Well, you know, Joe Joe Walsh is playing in, with my dad's band at the moment, and he's down. He's in this really snooty hotel in London." And he hates it, and he wants to get out of it. And he wants to come out to Liverpool a day early, because you know he, he loves Liverpool. And uh, and I told him about you, told him, told him, you know what a wanker you are. And uh, <laughs> and and he he said he said he might come up there. He goes, I'm just warning you, it probably won't happen, but just in case, I'm I'm giving you heads up, you know. The Joe Walsh is coming, right? Okay. And then that was that. So then I was downstairs. And my mum was upstairs in the bedroom tidying up or whatever. And then the phone goes. And I'm like, oh shit. You know, it was a lazy Sunday in March, nothing going on. And uh and she goes, Ian! I can still see it. So I walked out and I looked up the stairs and she looks at from the top of the stairs and she goes, Joe Walsh. <laughs> and then <clears throat> so then I had to go and pick him up and entertain him and what the hell did you do and he was he was still kind of uh, using at that point you know okay, he, was still, yeah, yeah. he was still deep in his cups it was just before he cleaned up for that first e Eagles reunion and I had to take care of him and it was so funny you know but, uh, you're, 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 I can see. I, I never met Pat, but I can. It's Joe Walsh. Like, yeah. Oh, that's that's. I mean, oh, you know, wow. there's, there's many stories. That, you know, I, I had crazy horse around here for dinner. You know. Oh right, yeah, because you and Neil Young were mates. So yeah, yeah. yeah. And and uh, well, Neil wasn't with him. I was just playing with crazy horse. He was both playing playing with Pearl Jam, and uh, which is what why crazy horse played with me because they were a little miffed with him. Okay. Um, and uh, I've told this story before, but it's worth telling again. And Bill, Billy Talbot, the bass player, we, we finished dinner, and Billy likes to talk a lot. And he walked over to the fridge and got himself a beer out, you know, and he's going, hey, man, you know, when we did this, man, and when we played here, man, and fucking Neil, man, and this, that, and the other, and fucking this. And my mum goes, uh, excuse me, uh, I don't know how it works in that California or wherever it is you're from. 
But in Liverpool, we ask permission before we go in the refrigerator. <laughs> so that, so that was, uh, yeah, there's a bunch more like that as well, but that'll do. Oh, gosh, that's great, man. Um, oh, geez. See, there was uh, one time I was in Liverpool and I, I went and bothered Jeremy for a minute, you know. And I, again, you know, like, I, and, and, and I've said this, like, the, the, the greatest bands from Liverpool are the Ice School Works and the Bunnymen, right? Beatles are, wow. you know, I, and, and I made my, and, and I even talked to Mac about this, is that, look, man, the Beatles' internal strife broke up. They stopped relating to their fans. They stopped playing to their people, you know, and you... And the bunny men, right? And you're like, fuck it, no, we're gonna go and keep getting in your faces and, and and let you know we're still here and we love you, right? And and um but uh Jeremy and I were wandering Liverpool for like literally just, yeah, I got a couple hours, let's go and this guy's is back around that same time, right? And there was this club, not a club like a, a cafe or a bar, I can't remember what it was called, and I met all these other Liverpudlian musicians, right? Oh yeah. And then years later, it was just like two years ago, or no, it was right before pandemic. So like what, late 2019, um, rumors of Fleetwood Mac were playing through town. Yeah. And I sat down and I, I was talking to them. They, they, their publicist rang me up, said, look, can you shoot him? They just put this last gig on Salt Lake. It's the last of the tour. Do you want to go and shoot him for us? I was like, sure. So I went and shot him and, and everything. And, um, I met Alan again, and I just did. I said to Alan Cosgrove, "Do you know Alan? By the way, do you know Alan Cosgrove?" Yeah, both, yeah. I said, "Yes, yeah, so I met you like forever ago." He said, "Where?" I said, "I was in Liverpool, and it was at this like the the the, the musicians hangout cafe place, you know." And I met you then, like forever ago. I said, "Sato or Mercy?" I was there with Jeremy and Paul Stacy, and he goes, "Oh yeah, those kids." And I was like, "Kids." They were they they were in their thirties at the time, and you're calling them kids, right? It just was so funny because like it's <laughs> like because you know Jeremy and Paul, they're I mean great great guys and everything, but oh yeah, those kids, yeah, nice guys. It's like he's calling them kids, <laughs> you know. It was just, but Alan Cosgrove's a great guy too, like that. You yeah. Know, he's, oh, he's he's a fantastic musician himself. So well, I wonder which place it was that you you went to the. But this this was like the mid nineties, late nineties, yeah. What it had been? It was it wasn't the bar in Park Street, was it? It wasn't a. It was kind of like a restaurant cafe type thing. It was just where everybody'd go and crack open the the paper and talk about music and whatnot. I just popped in and grabbed an orangina, and then we we you know. Right. Okay. So I don't remember what it was called because it was just very briefly there. But I remember meeting him because he's a tall, bald fellow. Yeah. I was like, yeah you know. Yeah. And, um but that was like all the like it's so funny seeing that all those years later right you know that everything's coming full circle even uh but yeah i mean doing that bunny tour with when jeremy and henry were on and we were all just build up we started in paris and we we're going through belgium and everything we're like yeah man is max ian he's gonna be in amsterdam and um you weren't there. I don't. I don't even remember what you said. You got hung up on some and couldn't make it to Amsterdam that night. But I was like, oh bummer. I was so looking forward to seeing it, meeting. Oh well, a couple months later, we're in London, and I I just 
stumbled upon you at the Guinness fly, you know? So that was, yeah. uh, so, but any, even more, like I, I just was reading. And then when, when Pat passed, I saw that I felt like, you know, I didn't know her. I only met her twice over the phone, but. Oh, it's she, so cool. You got to speak to her. Oh, she was great. Yeah. She was really great. Yeah. yeah. You know, we, we never did get around to building that, uh, to doing that, that, short film with the atheist though but uh i maybe will one day i don't know i've been doing you know well you have my permission <laughs> so, he was right but uh so th this is kind of funny right so i old school high school works fan and uh i had blind small price of bicycle just all of it and then when I, I served my LDS mission, I served my Mormon mission in, in Hamburg, Germany. And it was there that I found, I got the iSchoolWorks Live, the BBC. Oh, yeah. I got that CD, which was great. I got the seven, I got the seven singles collection on vinyl and right. permanent damage. Oh, it's a good haul. And I, I shipped them home. And they never made it. So I oh, never actually man. did listen to the whole of permanent damage like that. The vinyl be worth a fortune right now. Well, you know? do you know what? Just strangely enough, you're bringing that up. I just got an email uh, yesterday from Sony wanting to know if I was okay with them. Uh, they're doing a, a, a 180 gram repress of permanent damage. Oh, I'd love that, man. So, so yeah, so I okayed that yesterday. Actually. I never got to listen to it like that. I, I got a CD copy, bootleg CD years later of it and was like, okay, it was a great record, but I still have vinyl, man, you know? Yeah, absolutely. You see that flag? Yeah. <laughs> Behind that flag, I have about 3,000 pieces of vinyl. It's not a record if it is non-vinyl. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's... uh. Well, and, and Mark Burgess from The Chameleons, he said, you're not a real band if you're not getting bootlegged, you know. Uh, especially in the T-shirt department. <laughs> I, I If I see a Chameleons bootleg T-shirt, I, I I love the live bootlegs. I love live live boots, of yeah. any, you know. But, um, so yeah, I never got to listen to the vinyl of that. Uh, never made it to the States. I, I dropped it in the mail and it never made it. But uh, I had at that point, let's see, when I met you, I was living in Paris and I picked up Head Like a Rock and Mercy Beast. Yeah. And even Truth and Beauty is still I, one of the most amazing records uh, I've ever heard. Oh, thank you so much. A lot of people like that that record. It's um, It was a bit of a watershed, really, that one, because... You know, well, obviously it was my first record without the icicle works written on it, so that was pretty scary. But uh, you know, because what happened was, you know, Epic spent a lot of money on permanent damage, and uh, we were up against it. Really, you know, it wasn't it, our time had passed for that moment anyway. You know, we were putting out a, a an album when all of that kind of Manchester, Manchester Stone Roses, Happy Mondays. All of that kind of ecstasy thing came up just so, as we really. So the focus there. left Liverpool and went over to uh, to Manchester. Well, the, the focus yeah. just went on e ecstasy, you know, or X as you call it over there or whatever. Yeah. And it was all happy music. And permanent damage was kind of like a, a bit of a drunken rock and roll record. and. It was like being in a dinosaur band, you know. 
even though I was actually younger than a couple of the guys in those Manchester bands, you know, Clint Boone from the Inspiral Carpets is older than me. Ian Brown's only 18 months younger than me, you know. It's funny pop music, isn't it, the way that it's it's pushed across you. Right, but, but then there's you and Neil Young making records together, right? I was like... And, and, and when the Bunnymen had... Um, and I was talking to Henry about this when when they're like, oh, yeah, Ray Manzarek was in the Bunnymen for a while. And Ray and I were there working studio. I'm like, oh. Well, the, well, they, they got Ray in. Well, first thing is when the um, one of the first times the, the Bunnies played in L.A., um, you know, because Ray was pretty hip. He was down with all the new wave bands because the, the Doors were one of those bands that survived the cull, you know. Uh -huh. they, they were kind of like a cool band because Iggy Pop liked them and liked them and all that kind of stuff. So he met them early on, and um, yeah, but he was and, also a keyboard player, so he he picked up with all the synth guys. You know, that was like, yeah. But, yeah, but was he so played. That, yeah. I saw Ray play with them at the um, the Universal Amphitheater in LA in '87, and then he came over here. Well, I think he came over to Liverpool before that because he played on their version. Of people are strange, but you know what? He, it's like he played it. He played his parts on a fucking emulator. It's like use the Vox Continental organ, you know. The emulator Jesus. was what New Order was playing on. Yeah, yeah. It, you know, it had like a kind of organ sound. Yeah, that's yeah, yeah. A bit like I think that I think the sound even said Doors organ. You know. So there's Ray going, Dini doing all of his thing. He, he was kind of more, more piano. He, he played on um, Bed Bugs and Bed, Ballyhoo. Bed and Ballyhoo. He played yeah. the organ on that. And I think it was mainly piano he played on uh, People Are Strange. Um, but that, you know, that that was um, you know, that 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 was the big one for the bunny men. I think that was when they they were looking like they were really gonna poke through with that the gray album. They were ready to, if Mac's father hadn't died at the situation, if, if it all hadn't gone south, when it did, the Bunnymen probably would have blown through and been as big as you 2 or R.E.M., you know, because they yeah. were right on the cusp of that. It's, you know. Well, Mac and I have always been pretty close, and we were, we were very close around about that time. And, um, you know, stuff I won't go into, but he just felt it wasn't really going the way he wanted it to. And then his dad died. And uh, he wasn't really himself, you know. Yeah, I've uh, I've worked. I've been on bunny tours. I've worked. I, I did the Euro tour. It was just a, yeah, like, I don't know too much about me. But I, I was backstage in Paris, and they had all just seen The Fifth Element. And so Will and Les, uh, they're like, okay, we'll put you on the guest list, you know, for all the shows coming up. But your name is going to be Houston Jones, right? And so... Every show on that tour, like any other place, I have to show ID of my 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 name. You know, no, for that bunny tour, I go to the to to the the will call at every every venue, and I had to just say, you know, we're at the Paradise in Amsterdam or Ancien Belgique in Brussels, right? And I have to say, uh, my name's Houston Jones, and it, it has next American, and they just handed me tickets and a backstage mask so no id nothing great. nothing it, like so that that's what the bunnymen were you know they've always been great like that with me oh, they've yeah. always just been you know 
and uh, they've just given me laminates for other tours and said, here, don't bother us for tickets. Just come when you can. And you know, Yeah. But uh, let, let's talk about Nabby Road, shall we? Sure. Um, other than I was in Paris, got Mercy Beast with the second CD with the live stuff in it. It was fabulous. Loved it. At the time, any live was good because the bootlegs bootlegs were harder to find back then. Now you can find pretty much anything that had ever been recorded. It's up there. Sure, but, like uh, the day after the gig. Yeah, hard to find them back then. Now it's like, oh, if I want to get some live Icicle Works or Ian McNabb, it's it is up there. It's good to you know. Um, but uh, Nabby Road, man, really heavy, probably of your solo work. I, I, it's got some of your darkest stuff in it. Uh, I'm just gonna say that. Uh, really. I don't know. There was some of it. I was like, man, it, there's some really, I mean, Ian's taken this in a lot of different directions on this record, but uh, Sausalito, right? Yeah. Um, the drum beat in there, and I, I'm not saying you stole it or anything, but the drum beat reminded me, because drum beats can be generic. You could say this is this, but that was uh, The Last Refugee by Roger Waters. Just boom, came straight to me listening to that. I was like, wow. oh, wow. You know, and... well, I, do, I mean, I am a. I've never made that co connection before. In fact, I didn't actually write that part. Oh, okay. That that that, that song is a, a collaboration between me and, and my producer. But it, he, what Sausalito is about, is, uh, I mean, it's mentioned in um, Head Like a Rock. Started out in Sausalito, they said you talk about fields. And Chuck Prophet always reminds me about that. He goes, hey, man, you rhymed Sausalito with Beatles? Dude, awesome. And so I, what I wanted to do is I wanted the album to start. This album for me was like, I wanted it to be like uh, kind of rebirth, you know, after all the, the death that had gone down around it. And uh, so I wanted Sausalito to be on there. It was like, well, that's where we started. In Sausalito, and I wanted a nice little instrumental just to because you know, everybody expects when you drop the needle, you know, to, for something to thunder out, you know. Yeah, and, and, and the hero like, is just Whoa. a really simple, cool drum beat, like, yeah, let's, yeah, yeah. Well, you see, I, I, I'm the guy who I will hear other people's songs in other people's songs, right? And so that was like, oh, okay, yeah, that's that's that last refugee beat, but he's doing this with guitar and. I dissect people's music that way, but it was, it was very different. It was not what I was expecting, but it, it really right, yeah. did give me a good feel for the record, you know. Yeah, I, I mean, a couple of people were surprised by that, um, but in my mind, you know, it's like that. Like over the past twenty years, I, I have come so close to starting an album with an instrumental. That to me now, I, I actually thought I'd already done it a couple of times, you know. So it right. wasn't surprising. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. Now let's talk about Steal Away. And this this one kind of made me laugh a lot listening to it because Steal Away was American radio pop rock 1982. Not the British New Wave that you were in 92. But what I would have heard on the American radio in in eighty two, 
Okay. Okay. That's what it sounded like. I was like, oh my gosh, this is right up there. Like you could have tossed that right in the middle of what I was listening to on the radio in 82 with my brothers. And I thought that's kind of funny because there was Ian doing the ice school works at that time. But then there's this sound, which you just really, really nailed. Well, do you know what, Steve? I'll tell you what it was. It was um, I was listening to a lot of college rock um, American guitar bands when I was doing um, Nabby Road. Okay. And you know what? I'm kind of pissed off that I can't remember which which band I was listening to. And they're the, it's basically... That chord sequence is used a lot in E minor to A major. It's used in Medicine Bow by the Waterboys. And I, pl I played everything that's on the album. I, me and Mike Scott always play each other's stuff to each other before it comes out, you know. And I, and I said to Mike, oh, I've got this tune. And it's I've kind of ripped it off Medicine Bow. And he went, no, I don't really get that from it, you know. Do you know what, what, was, the, the, what was this band called? I can't remember, but anyway, I was listening, and it was what it was kind of thundering away. E minor, you know, it's just rock, rock and roll. And then I picked up my twelve string, and just you know hit record, and started basically playing a Peter Buck riff, you know, because that's what that is. And I just played it back, and I just thought, well, you know, it just it sounds like early 80s college radio America, you know. Um, and that was it. And I nicked the title from uh, Nils Lofgren's song. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not too precious about stealing. You know? <laughs> I, I think the more the merrier. I, I always say, you know, um, you know, what, what, what is it? Uh, cl clever, clever borrows, genius steals. You know, and don't hide it, you know, don't try and hide it. And do you know what? If if it gets to the situation whereby somebody gets upset that you've ripped them off, it only means that you're doing something. It only means, yeah, well, you're right. Well, if they find out about it, I mean, the amount, you know, the amount, the amount of, time, of every, like, well, how long did it take for minute work to get sued for that land down under, right? Like yeah. 80 years. Okay. I think you're and, and it's that. like the, by the amount. I mean, you know, uh, Randy California's estate have been trying to do Jimmy Page for like fucking 20 years for um, Stairway to Heaven. I mean, because what happened was Spirit opened for Zeppelin, or I think Zeppelin might have opened for Spirit, and they had this song called Taurus. And it is really is, it's the same phrase of Stairway to Heaven for like two bars. And then it goes somewhere else. It's like fucking hell, man. We've got six strings, 12 notes, and you know, we're gonna use them all. You know, there's there's only so much, so much that you can do, but but I, I don't I don't worry about that. And you know, if you do eventually, if somebody goes, that sounds exactly like it's like, first of all, who's gonna sue me? You know, they're not gonna get you know ten million dollars in back sales, you know. <laughs> Uh, well, Le, Lamal said, um, Lamal from, you know, sure. Google, he, yeah. he said, where there's a hit, there's a writ. Yes. You know, <laughs> he's, I mean, Lamal, he's, he's great about that. Um, but uh, so this one, I, I thought it was interesting because you, you had the sound of 1982, but you were singing about current issues. It felt like you're singing about 
the current political climate or the current yeah. situation. And yeah, it's uh, a little bit of that. We're, we're going to run out of this town before the deal goes down. We're going to steal away, cashing in the chips, building iron ships, busting yeah. down the doors, making up new laws. Yeah. Uh, we're going to blow this town to higher ground. I was like, man, he he's, he's, he's kind of covering, okay, the whole Liverpool, the shipbuilding business, but also just kind of just the, the current climate. You're, you're throwing a lot of different pieces into the story there. Well, I mean, I, I don't know about you. I mean, it's, it's I, you know, we won't go down the rabbit hole because we'll be here all day. But, you know, I, a lot of things have gone on since the, the pandemic kicked in. That I, I feel that the pandemic has been, you know, weaponized to enable other things, you know, the infringements of civil liberties. And I think they've been able to use the fear of, of uh, you know, the COVID to, to you know, to, to enable more of a globalization. With, you know, I'm a conspiracy theorist, you know, and uh, I, I can go down that road, but I won't. And uh, but I don't, I don't ram it down people's throat. I don't talk about it at shows, you know, I don't, people have, and you know, it makes it into a couple of songs, but it's ne it's never, I'm never trying to force it down your throat. You know, the thing I hate is being told what to think. You know, it's like, make you, make your own mind up, but it's there if you, if you, if you want to listen to it, you know, I've, I've always kind of, I mean, you know, people, when people go to a show, you know, be it a rock show or an acoustic show or a, an orchestral show, any show, a dance show, they want to have a good time, you know. They don't want some motherfucker going, you better do this, man, or shit's coming down, you know. At first they came for them and I didn't say anything. And then they came for them. Oh, shut the fuck up, man. You know, I just want to have a couple of drinks, you know. A couple play, of drinks play it and play it out, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, go to a Julian Cope show. Um, enough said, right? Uh, I'm a I'm a huge Julian Cope fan. Oh, I love Julian. Do you know what? I just I know this is probably a cliche thing to say, but I mean, I'd really love it if he did a, a ten track pop album. You know, because he's so good at writing pop songs. Well, like, did you hear? Like, he he put out that song a couple like just recently called "Cunts Can Fuck Off." That was just. He's so he's like, I found the most offensive way to take every possible word and phrase and write it in a one song. And hey, listen, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna give you an exclusive here. Because it's kind of like it's it's fun. I'm sure he won't mind. Um <laughs> you know, Frankie goes to Hollywood and reforming. Yeah, I just read that last night, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> and Brian and his his missus are doing some charity parachute thing, and I, I donated uh, some some money towards it uh, the other day. And he's just texted me. <laughs> he's got, he goes, I hope he doesn't mind me saying this. He goes, Hey Mac, I saw your donation. Thanks, man. Much love. I will be over to see you when all this fucking bollocks is out the way. Well, tell him I said that, hello. That, that is that is so Liverpool. You know? is, <laughs> it's it's so it's, it's you know it's it's so you know that's well, why. Isn't I, he a funeral barker? Isn't that what Brian's doing nowadays? He's a celebrant. 
Yeah, yeah. The, yeah. I did my mum's funeral, you know. Oh wow! Okay. And when by the time he'd finished, I thought, I just thought, Christ, I don't know what to say, because he'd done it all so well, you know. But anyway, yeah. So so that's when all this fucking bollocks was over. So Frankie goes to Hollywood to get them back together, and Brian Nash is like, when all this fucking bollocks is over. That is well, only because they they tried to get holly to reunite with them about 15 years ago and didn't happen and then they got ryan o'neill to go and do the one live with them for trevor horn's princess trust right and then you know holly's been doing the holly johnson show the last year but i guess i mean look they're gonna make so much money off of this it's gonna be absurd how much money they make you know well but, good, yeah. i mean i i don't really um I don't really understand why. <clears throat> I mean, Holly isn't Holly isn't like the other guys, you know. He's not even like Paul, you know. I mean, obviously Holly and Paul are gay. The other three guys ain't. Not that that should make any difference, but he's, he's you know, he's not really one of them, and he's always resisted it. And Holly goes out and does his Holly show, and it's terrific. And you know, and he's got a couple more hits to play if he does his Holly show because he had a, he had a couple of pretty big uh, records under his own name. Um, but for some reason, he's decided he wants to do this, and I don't know why. And and I hope I do find out why. I mean, you know, the the the, uh, the Colombo in me, you know, would say, has it got anything to do with the money? <laughs> Has it got anything to do with the money? Oh, 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 and, and another thing, and another, and thing. another thing. <laughs> oh my God, Ian, you, you and I could spend a day just fucking around about just whatever. <laughs> just, um, I would love to see the Frankie reunion, but then again, I like I could write a book on strictly just Liverpool and not mention the Beatles, okay? Not that I'm ripping on the Beatles, but no stone has been unturned about them. Well, do, do, you know, do, do you know what, Jeremy? It's it's weird, like, I I still don't think that... Um, I mean, Liverpool was very slow to serve the Beatles. That, you know, they knocked down the cabin. Well, I used to live in Hamburg, okay? They had more success there than they ever did in their own hometown, but yeah. But, you know, in the 70s, you know, the Beatles were given very short shrift in the UK. Um, this, this was kind of before we had this situation. You know, when a band broke up back then, because, don't you know, rock and roll started, what, you know, mid-50s, and then by the time we got to the 70s, you know, it's, it's still only like fucking 15 years. We didn't really know what to do with it or where it was going. And when a band broke up, that was like, oh, well, that's the end of that. You know, we didn't have this kind of afterlife and legacy kind of thing. I mean, you know, there's there's still, you know, there's there's hundreds of thousands of people around the world, millions of people, who, and Queen are their favourite band. And, you know, the, the guy died in 1992. You know, the fall have got thousands of fans. You know, it's, it's like, it, but we hadn't realised that that just meant it was the end of the performing live and being an, an ongoing situation, but there's going to be all of the fan clubs and this, you know, blah blah blah. And it was only and, when and a bad movie with disco stars in the seventies trying to recreate the the magic of them. 
remember that that shitty disco sergeant peppers with the Bee Gees, right that was like yeah we're gonna yeah. revitalize you know was... the beatles no no you know what? i actually i was just writing about that before it, on it in a comedic way um funny little sidebar for you there um i was doing a charity gig with uh john entwistle out the who in in the late 80s and me and John and, and my girlfriend were in a pub and um, my girlfriend had just heard about these things called snuff movies. You know, those, you know, those, those things that where you see people get killed. And for some reason she started talking about it while we were drinking. And she goes, what do they call those movies where anybody that that's in it is never heard of again? And John Emerson went, isn't it Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Arts Club end? So, but in the seventies, and and Guns don't forget, the man who wrote Boris the Spider. Okay, and and don't don't forget, Lennon stopped working in 75, 74, when he did Walls and Bridges and the Rock and Roll album. So he was gone, and then so we were in the mid seventies, and we were getting fed up with all the the huge dinosaur bands, and Wings were what everybody knew Paul McCartney for, not the Beatles, you know, in the 70s, because he was on the radio all the time doing, you'd think that people would have had enough of silly love songs. You know, it wasn't even Hey Jude or, or some of his good ones. Right. Now, the the, ol the only good, like, I, I would hand this, Paul McCartney's only real big banger after the, the all that was uh, that Pipes of Peace song. Right. I, I really, yeah. yeah. Everything else was just kind of meh, you know, couldn't really, yeah. You know. But, but but my point being that, you know, we didn't realize that um, bands had life after death, you know, you know, very much so, you know, and uh, and it was when L Lennon got whacked that the Beatles all of a sudden became cool to like him again. And um, I, I just think that you know, it was it, it was same obviously on a very very small level, but with Icicle Works, you know, we kind of went away when no one was interested, and then you know, ten twenty years later, I get people like your good self, you know, you know, people who who live in fucking America and Japan and Christ knows where, going, oh man, the first Icicle Works record, you know, one of the best debut albums ever, and it's like, really. You know, nobody was saying this, you know, when we were trying to, we couldn't fill a room, you know, in 1990 in, in Paris. And um, and it's because the music, I mean, for instance, Birds Fly, Whisper to a Scream, or Whisper to a Scream, Birds Fly, as it's known over your side, has, has, had, has got its own life now because it was in that yeah. Stranger Things. Oh, Stranger Things, yeah, it was also in Scream, because you and I talked about them using it in Scream, and you said, I didn't even know about it well, until, nobody I, told, until nobody, I got the nobody, check, you know. <laughs> well, that's it, nobody told me about that one. And Stranger Things happened. And do you know what? It's like I'll be I'll be doing a gig somewhere, and I turn up to a gig, and, I, you know, people who come to my shows are of a certain age now, obviously, you know, either a little bit younger or a little bit older than me. And occasionally we get younger people in, but it's mainly, you know, people my age. And uh, the bar staff at these venues we play, 
I'll all be young people, you know, usually students, earning a bit of extra cash. And they come in and, you know, they, they look like they'd rather be anywhere else, you know, and they're usually playing with the phones most of the time. And I'll barrel through my show and I can see them serving drinks or when they're not serving drinks, they just order like this, you know. And then I'll start playing Birds Fly and they're like... They'll start recording it. <laughs> it's like, it's, 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 I mean, and it's like that, that, and that's when, when a song becomes, you know, and they haven't got a clue who I am, but they know that song because it's out there. You know, it just, it went, it went somewhere. It, I wasn't pushing it, you know, because the band can, the artist can push it to a certain extent, and then it lives or dies to where we can push it. But some songs, and that's one of them, just carry on. Well, you, you see, know? for for me, because, like, with my kids, right, um, oh, geez, the, the weirdest moment, right? Uh, I hadn't seen that episode of Stranger Things yet, but I'm like, oh, yeah, I, I interviewed Lamal just recently, man. Like, like I, I knew it was on there, and I, I knew that my girls were listening to it. But I didn't tell them until after I'd interviewed Lamal. I said, hey, you know, I, I just talked to that guy. And my girls were like, no way, right? You know, just, and but like. But, you know, how old are the girls? Uh, at the time that this is about, what, three years ago, four years ago. So it was uh, my oldest would have been about um, 13. Youngest. But they love they love 80s shit. They do now, right? But you see, that's what's so funny is because, like, when they play that Pass the Duchy, right? I was like, that song was really annoying in 83. It's it's worse now, you know? But they, it's it's funny because they'll hear something. I'll go, oh, yeah, I know those guys. Or, yeah, I've interviewed them. And, and they, they really go, wait, really? You know? And I will try and get them to do other things in Taylor Swift or whatever or Pink. And, and, and we'll go. And then they'll be like, oh, Dad, you know, whatever, right? But like you, you just made that point exactly because now they'll be listening to anything on Stranger Things. They'll listen to right. But I never in my life thought that my kids would listen to the Cramps. Okay, what and is I, that? But I, mean, I love that... them. And I, I was driving in my, I was wearing the car the other day. My my daughter puts on her playlist, and then there's Goo Goo Muck by the Cramps, and I was like where did that like i know those guys see i like i interviewed them the guitarist just a month ago where the hell did that come from she's like oh it was on that show wednesday i'm like God. well you know that that is the that is the great thing about music you know it it, it needs a, a few lucky breaks to get it through just well, the I, I, I hope you got a couple of quid stashed for uh well, after... I, I did pretty, well i'll be honest with you i did pretty good out of that but what you know, it wasn't a tremendous amount. You know, it wasn't like I can retire now, you know. Yeah. I mean, my, my accountant, you know, who's been with me a long time, it's like some years it looks like I'm going to be able to buy a boat. And then the next year it looks like I'm going to be fucking singing on one, you know. Yeah. <laughs> it's just so up and down, you know. The, you know, the, uh, the, the career of a, a, a musician on my kind of level a cult act, if you if you will, and um, 
but you know, so it's it's like, you know, my 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 friend and producer Kieran, he's got two daughters, and they're like mid-teens, and he's said things similar to what you've said there. It's like he'll get in the car with them, and he won't put any music on, and one of them will be in the back, and they'll be on the phone, and they'll have the music playing, and he'll go, he goes, you know, I was in I was in the car the other day with our Willow. And I'm t- I could hear she was playing something. And it was like, I said, what's, what's that you got on there? And it was uh, A Million Years by The Cure of Pornography. Oh, jeez, right. And, right, and right. he's like, what? How, how the fuck? What? Right, because, well, Dad, was, your was, music's was, not cool. Your music's not cool. Your music's not cool. And then there it is, right? Like, you know, yeah. But, but it, and it's like, what? how come you... And, you know, she wasn't... She wasn't listening to Love Cats or Friday I'm in Love, you know. Right, right. She, she, this fucking is fucking a... the first track off pornography. Yeah. And he, what where did that come from? And she's like, Oh, it was in the film we were watching the other day. That's amazing. So, all right, like my daughter, we, we're in the car and she's listening to I'm Out With You by Modern English, right? And you know as well as I do, for modern English, that's a on a scale of one to ten, that's at about a three compared to the rest of their work, right? It, sure, they're but just, it's the one that got played. It's the one that got played, but they were modern English are gods, you know. Yeah. And um I have when when I was DJing as a kid in high school, I, I had the twelve inch single, not the album of after I had the twelve inch single of that so I could play it. So I was like that much cooler than anybody else because I had the twelve inch single of it, you know. You get this. I can tell you you totally get where I, you know, like well, I was cool because I had the single, not the album, right? And, twelve inch uh, single. Yeah, twelve inch single. And I, I went and I got it signed. I, I had the whole band sign it a long time ago. And then my daughter said, you know, this is that song that makes me love music. And so for her 16th birthday, I got that. I, I took the record and I got it in a big frame, autographed in the frame. All that, and it's hanging on her wall right now. And I'm like, I hope one day she realizes how amazing that is that she even has that. You know, oh, that's so cool. Yeah. And she will do. She will, one day. Yeah. Like I've got. One day, yeah, one day, yeah. right? But like driving in the car, listening to the cramps. Where'd that come from? Oh, that show Wednesday. I'm like, that's Lux Interior Poison Ivy, and like, it, you know, she like wouldn't get it, right? Dad's music yeah. was never cool until they found it on their own, you know. Yes, of course, yeah. But uh, so okay, let let's let's hit. All right, this is what I've noticed about a lot of people is that the the meaning of the song is kind of nestled in the second verse. But how you write your songs is a bit different in some of them because you don't write, you know, your typical verse one, verse two, and then your stanza. Um, the sun came out at night. Okay. I had that really nice melancholy cello in it. It was beautiful. Okay. Right. But then I was like, okay, now where are we with this? Okay. She took me to her darkness, let me in her head, took me to her garden, took me to her fears. And then the sun came out at night. First of all, I could feel the heat of the sun while I was listening to it. I could feel that. Wow. But, but what was going on in that song? Okay, two things, maybe three, maybe four, maybe five. Um, I just bought a baritone acoustic guitar, which is um, 
which means all the strings are down a fifth. Uh-huh. So um, your bottom string is a B. So it changes it changes the way you, you set songs up. Um, so I wanted to write a song on this that. This one okay. was very almost Leonard Cohen-esque. It was great. Yeah, and the finger picking is is that like um, something I don't do a lot. Um, it's the it's the picking that Donovan showed the Beatles in India. Paul Simon uses a lot, and the sun came out at night. Title was I was rewatching uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, oh, and they go okay. they go into the desert. And there's yeah. this Mexican guy, and he goes, "The sun came out at night," you know. And I went, oh, yeah. "That's a good part of this." That's a, okay. And then the other thing was, uh, Kate, my friend, who does all my string arranging. Uh, we for a few years we've been trying to do something that was, we wanted to pay homage, if you if you like, to you know like what Robert Kirby did with Nick Drake, on stuff like River Song. And you know the the really beautiful, very kind of um, oh, what's 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 the word for it? You know, autumnal rural music. And so yeah. we wanted to do song with finger picking and a really beautiful string accompaniment. Leonard Cohen, not... yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I'm like is, totally, yeah. Which is what his producer John Watts's face, who also produced Dylan, did did on on that first Cohen album. So yeah, that, that was definitely, a, um, but I didn't think Leonard Cohen. I, w I was thinking Nick Drake, you know? Okay. So what was, what was the, 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 just the lyrics was that experience, uh, took me to her darkness and let me in her head, took me to her garden, took me to her fears. Well, it's, it's very much, it's kind of like a Richard Thompson thing, you know, looking back on, um, it's it's not from any particular experience. You know, I've written so many songs now. They always say, write about what you know. It's like I'd written about what I knew by fucking 1987, you know? <laughs> so, and, and it, you know, if I had that much experience, I'd be dead. So, you know, a lot of, a lot of it is uh, creative thought and okay. like writing movies, you know? So how often do you see Uncle Julian anyway, man? Uh, last time I saw him, well, <clears throat> I'd have to go to one of his gigs, you know, because he wouldn't come to okay. Paris, would he? <laughs> um, he played at the uh, the academy in Liverpool, went and saw the show, hung out, uh, forgotten how tall he is, and uh, yeah, he's you know, he's just Julian, isn't he? I don't, yeah, I guess. You know, I don't know where he makes his money. I guess it must be through through these books about you know Neolithic Britain and and stuff. I yeah, he does a lot of that. Like if if you Google him or you look him up on YouTube, you see he's doing all these BBC things, walking around showing you archaic England. Yeah, he's uh... yeah, he's he's a one-off. You know, but I, I would like it if he made a bit more music. But you know, it's what he wants to do. I mean, we're, oh, he, he he does make great music, though. I do, you know, when he's we're we're all you know cracking on now, and it's like it's not that thing. You, you know, you I'm not one of those who subscribe to that thing of you got to keep going, keep rocking, keep you know more than ever. 
you know, it's like if you have a bit of a rest from it, you know. I mean, I'm on fire at the moment. Um, and if you, if the songs are coming, you just let them go. But I've, I've kind of got a feeling. I mean, my next the next thing that I'm doing is I'm going to, I'm doing an album of Fleetwood Mac covers, which I've wanted to do for ages. Oh, go knock on Alan's door. I'm sure he'd be the guy to... Well, the... well we're doing a slightly different spin on it. I'm, oh, okay. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not recreating the records, you know. Um, oh. And and I'm I'm doing um, my second book. Um, but Ju Julian just does what he wants. And, you know, some people... Do, I mean, tw Peter Gabriel's just about to release a new record. He hasn't put one out for 21 years. It's like, uh, oh. yeah, the uh, like, yeah, like the of new material, you're right, yeah, and it sounds uh, great, you know, but it's like, I guess he just, you know, that those guys were like, like Genesis, you know, that I mean, they were like, they were so young when they started, you know, I mean, it's like he, Peter Gabriel left Genesis when he was 25. I mean, it's mind blowing, you know, and then these done his solo grin and he slowed down a lot. When it, but, but um, yeah, you know, Julian does his thing, and I, you know, it's it, some people are fast, some people are slow, and and then all of a sudden you'll get a spurt when they do a, a load of stuff, and then you won't hear from them again for years, you know. It's, I always think it's because uh, the muse calls you, you don't summon it, you know, it lets well, it, it, it lets it know, it lets you know when it's time not the other way Let's you know when it's time well like i i've seen julian will still be on that same guitar he was playing on it like geez pre peggy so like he was this was his saint julian rec record guitar he's still playing that same guitar you know this many years later it's it's like it's just, it's it's like, just interesting he, he, like, he likes to make it difficult for himself you know well that but um there's a picture that I, I've posted several times and it says, you know, where he's there with his hat, it, th that same leather jacket from St. Julian with the sleeves chopped off. And he's got the, the elbow high leather gloves and the long beard and the long hair. It says, you know, sometimes you need to just look at a picture of Julian Cope to know everything's going to be OK. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I, I think he does that to piss Mac off, you know. I, I, <laughs> Do you think the feud is still going between him and Mac for real? Oh, un undoubtedly. Oh God! You know, I, I remember okay. I walked into a bar. I was meeting Mac one night, and I had, uh, and I don't know why I did this. Um, probably to piss him off, but I had a leather jacket on, and I had an old denim, and I thought, and I'd been watching uh, a Springsteen concert, and so I, I cut the uh, cut the sleeves off the denim. You know, and put the denim on over the leather, right? And uh, and I, and because I, I knew it'd piss Mac off, and I, and I walked in, and he went, "What are you doing? <laughs> Why are you doing? I can tell totally you, like Mac doing that, yeah. He said, "Take the denim off." I went, "No, I like this look. You'll take it off." So I took the denim off, and I just had the leather on. And he went, "That's better." I can tell you some crazy Mac stories, and, and you would believe every one of them. <laughs> we've, all was, uh, we've all got them. We've all got them. 
Oh God! So I, I, I'm such a Julian Cope fan, but he's such a hard person to find. He, he's like, you know, he makes it impossible to to actually locate him. That's great, though, um, isn't it? Oh yeah, that's well, like I mean, I, if you know, I heard the, you know, if you want to get in touch with Bill Murray, he doesn't have an agent, he doesn't have a manager, uh, he's got a, a number that you can ring if you want to book him for a film. And you got to leave a, a voicemail, and if he likes what you say, he'll call you back. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, that is just so crazy. <laughs> I mean, that, that's a. I, th I was I was with a, a record company for when I was doing those first three solo records, um, uh, um, Truth and Beauty. I'd like a rock and Mersey Beast. Right. And they signed briefly. They signed. Uh, they did a licensing deal with JJ Kale. Oh really? And, okay. uh, and uh, he didn't have a manager, and you know that whole image that that JJ put across of like living in a trailer. You know, I, I mean, it wasn't made up; it was true. You know, that's how. Oh really? That's how he lived. Anyway, they showed me, and he didn't send emails or anything, and they showed me a letter from him, and he sent over um, for his new new record that they were going to put out. And he sent over um, the mastered version of the record on digital audio tape. It, it was before files, wabs, and that. And some artwork, but it was all very kind of Heath Robinson, you know, kind of thrown together. And he'd just written this letter and he went, Hi there, uh, this is my new record. It's called da 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 da. Hopefully you like it. Uh, press it up. I'll I'll do I'll do uh, any interviews you can arrange for me. I won't be able to come over, uh, and uh, if it's if it sells a few copies, send me some money. All right, everybody. That was part one of the uh, Ian McNabb interview. I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, come back next week. We'll hit up part two and cover more of his uh, solo work and get some real bangers in there uh for right now this is what i'm going to close this out with we do talk about this a lot in the next episode but here's his epic song it's called in the presence of the one and it just does the job when you just don't quite know what to think or feel whatever this song really really just brings it home uh it meant a lot to me when i was religious and uh, in a strange way right now it still does so Enjoy, this is in the presence of the one. Cutting swathes through contradiction, word demand can meet supply. Once afflicted with the vision In the time that is goodbye Barren fields of revolution Love once given but now gone In the presence of the one
Right there, the presence of the 